Well, at first glance, this passage uh, might seem random or even uh, disjointed, uh, but the common thread really, I think you'll see, is relationships. Um, <clears throat> in honor of March Madness, uh, I thought I'd talk a little basketball off the top. Um, I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but I really like basketball. I stink at it, but I enjoy it. Um, two of my kids were born during March Madness. We're, we're in the hospital, and uh, games are going. It's a Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, it's the first time we've had a kid, so I'm, I'm just doing everything I'm supposed to do. And, and my wife says, do you want to turn on the game? I said, babe, if that's what you want, <laughs> let's do this. So I got to, it was, man, I love my wife. Um, anyway, March Madness. So uh, I won't, won't talk college basketball. I'm actually going to talk about uh, NBA. So Michael Jordan, 1984, he was uh, drafted third overall by the Chicago Bulls. It still hurts, but the Blazers actually had the second pick. I won't even say who we picked and the knee issues that he had. Um, but we, we, could have a, we could have had Jordan. We, we didn't. Jordan went to the Bulls. Uh, he, was, uh, he was at University of North Carolina. Uh, his final year in college, he won the uh, John Wooden Award, the player, player of the year. He was, he was phenomenal. Um, he broke into the NBA. And he was just scoring like nobody's business. He could fill up the hoop. Um, and his drive to, to improve, to succeed was unmatched. Like you, you read interviews with teammates, and they just said there's, there was no one like him. I mean, he literally got into fistfights with teammates during practice. Like the guy was so competitive and, and, and wanted the best. So Michael Jordan started off uh, really just this incredible scorer. Um, but the Bulls, as good as they were, they weren't winning championships yet. Like each year, they just couldn't quite get over the hump in the playoffs. They'd get knocked out earlier than people thought they should. Um, well, Jordan uh, won game during the regular season. He's, he's scoring as usual. An assistant coach, Tex Winters, uh, came to him and, and said, Michael, there's no I in team. And Michael quickly retorted back, yeah, but there's an I in win. Um, he, Michael, when he entered the league, w was really about what he could do, all he could do. He, he thought he could, could carry a team by himself, and Jordan could drop 60 points, but it didn't necessarily mean uh, that they would win the game. Uh, eventually, Phil Jackson and Tex Winters uh, convinced Jordan that, that he needed a team. Tex Winters uh, developed an offense called the Triangle Offense that really was, it was all about all five guys on the court moving in sync together with this beautiful, fluid ball movement. And Jordan went from this incredible scorer to once he bought into the Triangle Offense that, that the Bulls were implementing, he really he flourished into an incredible all-around player. I mean, a great rebounder. He, he was so much better at, as, at assists as time went on in his career. Um, he was an incredible defender. He, he became, arguably, the greatest of all time. Won six championships. There's more to the story. Probably should have won seven or eight. Um, but we, we need each other. We, we need relationships, even if you're the greatest of all time. Even if you prefer working on your own, maybe you just like to keep to yourself, but still, I think you know that you need people. 
Not only do you need others, but others need you. And by God's design, we're, we're interdependent, right? We see that in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is, is interdependent members. We have to have one another. And the preacher, who is most likely King Solomon, he looks at several examples in chapter 4 of problems in life when we're living just for ourselves. Um, now, it's easy to understand why, why uh, you'd think that, that if you're, if you're looking out for your own interests, that that will further your agenda, that that will ultimately be better for you. Um, but he says that living that way is vanity. And this is the word he loves to use, vanity of vanities. And it, and it means uh, vapor or smoke-like. Like you, you look like you should be able to grasp it, but as you grasp for that smoke, it just goes right through your fingers. So the preacher, through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's just scratching off item after item that fools us into thinking that we'll get ahead in life if we only do this, if we only live for this or seek this or that. But all those things end in frustration and put us in a worse place often than we began. Our true statement today is live for others. Seek what is right. Be content. Work in partnership and be teachable. And we'll see all those things in this passage. So beginning in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Sometimes our world feels that hopeless. And you can certainly make the argument that, that it is that bad. We look around, and we feel the weight of evil. We see people in power taking advantage, oppressing others. The preacher, he feels the weight of this. He sees the suffering of the oppressed, and he says, man, it'd just be better off to be dead. The dead have it better than the people that are alive, or even better yet, the people who have not been born yet, they have it even better. I had a friend uh, who, it took him a, a long time to decide if he was going to have kids or not. His wife was very patient with him. She wanted to have a family. But he just didn't know if, if it made sense to him to bring children into a world of such suffering. In a world where, where we do see oppression all over the place. It took him years and years to decide, was it worth bringing kids into this world that's been so broken by sin? And eventually, he decided it was. You may have heard in the news um, just about a month ago, uh, a man named Raphael Samuel. Um, he is suing, or at least he said, he's going to sue his parents for bringing him into this world without his consent. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pretty interesting, uh, and it doesn't appear just to be a publicity stunt. Like he, he, while he knows that it was impossible um, for his parents to gain his consent, he, he really hates the suffering of this world. Ironically, uh, he says his parents and him have a great relationship, um, and they're also lawyers. So um, mom basically said, you can sue me, but if we get in court, I'll tear you up. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. Um, 
that's a ridiculous lawsuit. I don't know if he actually filed it or not. I didn't follow up with that story. Um, but if the preacher was his judge, you wonder if Mr. Samuel might win the case. Because the preacher's right. There is oppression everywhere we look. And I know we, we talked about it last week, but, but it, it's a sad reality. You take greed plus opportunity plus, plus power, and there can be oppression. Right? Anyone with opportunity and power could be tempted to take advantage of other people, right? to, to take their own interests or, or the interests of a small, limited group of people and, and, and oppress other people. Philippians 2.4, Paul tells us, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? Humanity has a terrible history of mistreating other human beings. How many of our problems would be greatly reduced if we didn't just take into consideration our self-interest, but also the interests of others. And unfortunately, oppression is not just an ancient problem, but it's a modern-day problem. We're well aware, or we've become well aware of human trafficking. We know of children working around the world in, in terrible working conditions, endangering their lives, often killing them, and, and, and really being paid for uh, sometimes next to nothing. We know of the oppression of women. We know of oppression fueled by racism. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. The preacher saw how bad it was. He, he noted the tears of the oppressed and that no one was there to comfort them. Jesus, in, in Matthew 5, he teaches his people a different way. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? We know what it's like to be really hungry. Some of you get hangry, which you guys, I just want to like poke you. It cracks me up that you can't like <laughs> have a decent mood when you're hungry. But anyway, <laughs> you, you, you get hangry or, or we know what it's like to be thirsty. Like you're, you're just parched and, and you need a drink so badly. Jesus says that is how badly we should want righteousness. Right? And even if, even if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, I don't think you can argue with what Jesus says here, that, that this is good, that, that it's, it's good to want what is right. It's good not to just take in our own considerations, but, but think about what is right for everyone. And we should hate oppression. William Wilberforce did. He was elected to British Parliament in 1780. And he started playing the political game. After a couple of years, he was, he was born again. He gave his life to Jesus. A little while after that, he, he saw the oppression of slaves. And he fought hard to abolish slavery in Britain. In 1789, he and another parliament member managed to have 12 resolutions against the slave trade introduced. However, all of them were, were legally um, outmaneuvered. He wrote other bills that were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. People realized that William Wilberforce was not going to give up. They targeted him. Pro-slavery groups vilified him in the public. 
There were threats against his life. His political career certainly suffered for his stand against slavery. It wasn't until 1807 that his work finally began to bear fruit. And then in 1833, three days before he died, the Emancipation Bill finally passed through committee. Wilberforce not only fought for slaves, he fought for single mothers, orphans, juvenile delinquents, and the poor. He was a man that was greatly used by God to fight oppression. The preacher moves on. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The preacher's already told us in previous passages and chapters that work is a good thing, that work is actually a gift from God. But like all of God's blessings, sin is ready to distort each and every one of God's good gifts, including work. So the preacher sees that much of our motivation to work hard can come from envy of our neighbors. Right? We aren't working to survive in the sense that, that many people around the globe today are working for. We have more than enough to survive, technically. Now, many Americans might be just a paycheck or two away from some problems, but how much of that is because of the temptation to constantly consume? Right? We have technology coming at us every day, the latest and greatest, or, or maybe we want a bigger living space or we want vacations that are Instagram-worthy. We all know about keeping up with the Joneses. So let's say maybe one summer your, uh, your next-door neighbor buys a boat. And you've had a fleeting thought, like, oh, I'd be kind of cool to buy a boat. But, but suddenly your neighbor has a boat, and you're thinking about it more and more. Like, Man, it'd be really great to have a boat. Like, I can just imagine the quality time that I'd have with friends and family members. Like, it'd be like ministry if I owned a boat. <laughs> like, I, I could really do some awesome discipleship with a boat. And in fact, every year, it seems like the high school group, they have that summer camp, and I think they need a boat, which is totally true. <laughs> July 8th through the 12th, they'll need a boat. So if you have one, hook them up. Talk to Matt. Maybe, though, if I had this boat... My life would just be better. We justify, we rationalize, and pretty soon we think that God's practically telling us in this audible voice, buy a boat to my glory, do it, <laughs> right? A boat that happens to be newer and faster than the one your neighbor bought too. Or, or maybe you don't need to see what your neighbor has to, to have envy, right? Every time I walk through Costco, like they make you walk by those big TVs on purpose, right? My TV is like eight years old. It's fine. But I see like 55-inch TV, 65-inch. I think there's like an 80-inch one there once. Maybe I've just blocked it out now. I'm not sure. But they're so, they're thin. They're elegant. They're reasonably priced. And I walk by, and suddenly I want a new TV when my TV at home is just fine. It, it doesn't take much. The, the lure of the latest and greatest is so tempting. And we can work to have more money, to buy more things. Or in our country, we would have the option, if that process is too slow for you, you can just pull out plastic. You, you can buy what you can't even afford. There, there's always a newer model of every product with more advanced features that we can work hard for, that we can chase after. 
and it's an endless pursuit. The preacher tells us it's like chasing after the wind. Right? You're not going to catch it. It's vanity. It will not satisfy. So what do you envy? What do you do out of envy? Do you work out out of envy? Is your relationship with food, what you eat or don't eat, fueled by envy? Are you envious of the new vehicle or maybe the classic vehicle that your coworker bought? Are you envious of posts that you see on social media? And then verse 5, he flips it. He, he, instead of someone that works really hard, he, he sees the lazy man. And it's possible that instead of competing with the Joneses, he just gives up. He, he realizes he has no chance competing, so the fool, as the preacher calls him, gives up and does nothing. And his laziness, we're told, not only eats away at what he has, but it eats away at who he is. His idleness, his idleness is self-destructive and self-cannibalizing. There's no doubt that God made us to work, that work is good for us, and that our work contributes to society. But so often we make our work only for ourselves. Verse 7, again I saw uh, vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So we have this image of someone that's a workaholic. Right? And we don't know their exact motivation. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's, maybe it's just he's just thinking about himself all the time. Whatever his motivation is, he, he works really, really hard, but his riches never satisfy him. He, he always wants just 10% more. And then he gets there and says, ah, I just need another 10% more. He's loaded, but it'll never be enough for him. He's so focused on his work that he doesn't even ask the simple question, who, who am I busting myself for? There's no one to share this with. And we don't know if, if he doesn't have anyone because he's working so hard. What good is it to be successful, to have a full bank account, but to be all by yourself, to be all alone? I had a friend that during his premarital counseling, uh, his pastor pulled him aside and, uh, and warned him. He, he said, I think that if you can't control how much time and effort you put into your business, your marriage is going to fail. And and my friend thanked him for that advice. And it changed things for a little bit. But pretty quickly, he, he got into the routines that he'd established. Right? He, he, loved, he loved making money. He, he loved being an entrepreneur, and he's good at it. And, and within a few years, his marriage had failed. His wife left him. She was sick of him coming home from work only to continue working. The preacher says, this is vanity. Working your tail off, never satisfied with what you have all alone in your wealth. Why not be content? Verse 6, popping back up there. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two, two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. We always think more is better. We're always tempted to think that way. Be content with the one handful of what is good. Are you content in Christ? Or are you trying to be content with the treasures of this world? There's a little girl that misquoted Psalm 23, and I actually love what she said. Instead of saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, she thought it was, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want, which is convicting. 
What do we want more than God? It's a constant battle for me to keep Jesus as my treasure. It's a battle I obviously, I don't always win. There are always suitors challenging the throne of Jesus for our hearts. And sometimes these are good things, right? Sometimes it can be things like, like family or, or work or being responsible with money, or, or your reputation, or, or maybe it's getting a promotion, or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's your physique. Maybe you aren't a consumer. Maybe you're really, really disciplined with money, and what you toil after is the security in a bank account that just keeps growing and growing in your investment portfolio, in your retirement fund, do you trust in accounts more than you trust in God as your provider? None of those things are bad. They're gifts from God, but they certainly aren't worth living for. There are many, many rivals for our affection. Can we say, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want? Verse 9, the preacher says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against, uh, against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Even if you're just vaguely familiar with the Bible, you know, my guess is you know that God created us to be in relationship with one another. I actually, I think, it's, I think it's pretty clear that it's one of the ways that we are made in the image of God. We, we know the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're in perfect relationship, so it should come as no surprise to us that they were, we were made to be in a relationship with God, that we were made to be in relationship with one another, that we actually need each other. We look at creation before sin enters, God looks at thing after thing, and he says, that's good, that's good, that's good. And he sees that Adam's alone. That's, that's the only thing that's not good. And this isn't, what the preacher's doing here it isn't just a marriage thing. Obviously, Adam and Eve, that, that is a marriage relationship. But in Ecclesiastes, this is relationships, period. Right? The preacher reminds us of really simple math. One plus one is greater than one. Right? Two working together will produce more than two individuals working separately. And he talks about traveling, and, and traveling was more dangerous back then, right? There, there weren't all these rest stops with nice old people like handing out free coffee. There weren't hotels. There weren't uh, lighted uh, paths for them to go on. Traveling was dangerous, and certainly traveling alone could get you in a ton of trouble. But if you had even just one companion with you, the, the, the bandits, the robbers that were lying in wait, hoping to ambush someone, they would think twice before trying to attack you if you're with someone else. And he says if you travel together, even at night, there's warmth in having someone with you. It's easier to keep warm with someone else than to be by yourself just trying to keep warm with blankets. And then he says a, a pretty famous line from the book, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Right? A single strand by itself, we know, can be easily cut. It can be easily broken. But even two strands together increases their strength greatly. You put three strands in, and now we have a cord. 
It is way stronger than that strand by itself. A rope strength come from these, these little strands woven together, and they're so strong that there are some of you that would trust yourself like hanging off the side of a cliff on one of those ropes, just a bunch of individual strands together. How much better it is to have a relationship. But, but it isn't just in work. It isn't just in traveling or even in self-defense. Think of the spiritual benefits when we share life together. Like if, you, if you know Jesus, my suspicion is you've learned by now that it is so good to have brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's consider praying together. And obviously, we have to have times where we're praying by ourselves. But it is really good to pray with other people. And if you don't pray with other people, ask yourself why. Like, do you have a good reason that, that you're not praying with other people? If it's fear that holds you back, I encourage you to, to break through that fear. For a long time at our gym, I was intimidated to go to any of the classes that they have. They have all these classes. They're free with membership. I don't know what I thought would happen to me in a class, but, but I was so stinking scared to do it. And finally, what it took was my wife went to a class and told me it was awesome and basically challenged me like, you can't do it. And I'm like, yeah, I can. And so I did it. And it was nothing. I mean, I was sore. <laughs> but, but my fears were dumb. Man, how much do we fear things like praying with one another? How much does that hold us back in following Jesus? Some, some bullet points for you. When we pray together, these are some things I've observed. And there's, there's many other benefits. But one is God unites us. Right? He intertwines our hearts and our minds for what he wants and with one another. He uses the heart of other followers, of their prayers as you hear them pray, the nuances that they pray in, the angles. Maybe it's just a little different angle than you would take, or maybe it's from a totally different side. But God uses those prayers collectively. There's a fullness about them. They're more rounded out than our prayers individually challenges our thoughts. I find that often when I pray with others. God refines me as I pray with others. One really simple thing is that I'm much more focused when I pray with others. When I pray by myself, I don't know about you, but my mind can wander. It's a lot harder for that to happen when I'm praying with other people. In my own experience, uh, God, God often brings a clarity to me when I'm praying with others, um, uh, whether it's direction or, or answering, uh, answering something that I've been wrestling with. But for whatever reason, God seems to, to give me more concrete direction and thoughts. It happened just this week. with uh, I was praying with Matt and, and Pastor Gary. We'd been talking about several things. We were praying about some things. And, um, and as we're praying, this thought just came really clearly to clearly me. I shared it with them, and, and we all affirmed, like, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's probably what we need to do. And I don't know why God seems to do that. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know how many other people experience that. But I often wonder if the reason God does that is because he likes it so much when his people actually come together and talk with him and pray with him. It might be awkward to start praying with others. Here's a couple tips. Uh, so this happens a lot. You're in church. You're talking to someone, a friend, like shares something really personal, maybe something hard, something they're struggling with, and we can tend to say, I will pray for that, right? Maybe you even write it down on your phone, like, to pray for that later. Instead, why don't you say, hey, can we pray for that right now? And, and for some of you, that might be really scary, 
they're not going to say no, <laughs> first of all. Like Christians, like, can I pray? Uh, yes. Like, we all know. Like, we're supposed to pray. They're not going to say no to you. They're not going to turn you down. Ask them if you can pray right then. Look at your calendar. Like, like, do you have time scheduled to pray with other people? If not, like, that's a good way to make it a habit. But whether it's once a week or, or once a month, like, I would encourage you to, to put slots in your calendar to pray with other people. Um, we have a prayer meeting that happens every other Sunday. Judith leads it. Um, every other Sunday in the nursery, you, you can come and, and pray there before church. Um, if you don't have someone that you pray with, I, I challenge you in the next seven days, find and ask someone to pray with. Maybe it's somebody at work. That, that maybe they don't go to church with you, but, but you know they're a Christian. Ask them if you guys could start praying together. I know it might be scary, you're not really risking much of anything. There, there's a pressure um, to pray. They will say yes to you. I can almost guarantee it. If not, send them to me. Um, uh, another benefit spiritually uh, of, of relationship together is, is when we read the word together. And, and almost everything I said about prayer could probably just be transferred. But it is good to read God's word together. It's actually kind of scary what people have done by themselves in the Word, right? When they read the Word by themselves and no one else is, is helping them see where they're off. And we, have, uh, we have a couple uh, Bible studies that, that, um, that are going on. Uh, Friday mornings is our women's Bible study. Wednesday evenings, uh, QFC is our, uh, is our men's Bible study. We also have a ton of people that they just started a Bible study on their own. Like they didn't ask the church, they just went for it. And that's beautiful. Right? Uh, some of you are hopefully doing the Bible read-through. If you're doing that, I encourage you, do that with someone else. Like get together, maybe weekly or every other week, and discuss what you're reading in the Bible. Another thing that is good for us to do together is confessing sin. And, and if praying with someone else is scary, this is really scary. But James 5.16, James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There is something about confessing sin out loud with another believer. We know we are to confess our sins to God, but he's also created us and commanded us to confess our sins to others. Do you have a person in your life that you confess sin to? If you don't, that is a deficit in your walk with Jesus. What we want to do is hide our sin, and we easily justify, I just need to confess it to God. But there's something that happens when we confess to others. When we, when we say it out loud, it pays, paves this avenue, I think, for accountability. Right? There's this good pressure that comes when I confess. When I confess to my friend, like, man, I just, I've not been patient with my kids. I just keep yelling at them this week. When I say that out loud to a brother in Christ, I know he's praying for me, and it puts this good pressure on me, right? Because I, I, I'm, I'm nervous that my friend's going to come and say a week later, two weeks later, hey, I've been praying for that. How's that going? And I want to be able to come back and say, yeah, it is going better. Like, that will drive me to pray, to depend on the Lord. So it, it is good to confess. If someone does confess sin to you, here's what you do. Pray for them and follow up with them. It's a scary thing to confess our sins to one another. I think it's a tactic that the evil one loves to use to keep us from doing it because we're so afraid. We're tempted to just be that single strand instead of that rope. 
God has gifted each believer in his sovereign wisdom. And part of that wisdom is also gifting us with deficits. Because these deficits help us see how badly we need one another. Each one of us has deficiencies and blind spots that remind us we need the body of Christ. Do you humbly recognize your need for other believers? Do you see that the body needs you? And I think for some of you, that might be the most important thing you hear today, is that the body of Christ actually needs you. Because it's easy to come to church and, and, and be a consumer, right? And, and think that really we only need a few people's spiritual gifts working for it to be a good church service. But no, the body of Christ needs you. God, God created you to be a part of your local church. When you don't give yourself to a church, that church misses out. The end of chapter 4 transitions into someone who really thinks they don't need anyone at all. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun along with that youth uh, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So we have this old king. He's been around for a long time. He doesn't take advice anymore. When he started off, he probably did. He, he probably knew that he needed help. There's a gift when you start something new, whether it's a job or a new project. There's an awareness that you don't know everything you need to know. And it, it makes you or at least it invites you to be humble. It invites you to be very teachable. Well, this king, he, he'd been around a while. He'd seen season after season. Maybe he thought, there's nothing new under the sun. I know what I'm doing. And he stopped taking advice. And, and that's compared to the new king. The new king, he's young. He's from humble beginnings. He, he was poor. He even went to prison. And then through... Uh, through growing up, through whatever happened in his life, he ends up on the throne. And he ends up leading a, a ton of people. The, the picture is here that he's, he's really good at being the king. And the implication is that unlike the foolish king, he takes advice. He asks people what they think. He sees that he needs others, and therefore he's teachable. The leadership model that we see in the early church in the New Testament, it's shared leadership. You don't, see, uh, you don't see Paul only doing ministry on his own. Paul, all the disciples, they have partners wherever they are. If they, don't have the par if they don't have a partner yet, they're looking for a partner. Ministry always takes partnerships. Ministry, when you try and do it by yourself, it will never work out. I've never seen it work out on your own. Are you teachable? Are you like the old king or the new king? Do you see that you actually need help? And maybe you don't feel like a leader, but every person in here, you're leading somewhere. Whether it's with your friend group or your school, at work, ministry, your family. Like we all have leadership influence. So what kind of leader are you? Are you teachable? In a typical Ecclesiastes fashion, just as he tells us that, that the king did a good job, tons of people are following him, he told us then, after him, nobody remembered him. <laughs> it's this giant letdown. He says, this is vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. 
just in case we were starting to feel good about ourselves. Relationships are, uh, they're hard. Right? Relationships are, are messy, and yet we know we need them. Right? We hurt one another. We, we sin against one another. Uh, if you've been to a wedding, you've heard a line that says something about for better or worse. Right? Knowing that even in this marriage relationship, right, where, where you start off with all these like awesome feelings and you're, you're practically floating around, which is actually this chemical thing that's happening in your brain that lasts like 18 months. Um, but, but everything feels so good. And then that chemical wears off and things get challenging. Right? Idiosyncrasies aren't so cute anymore. For better or for worse is a real thing, and it's not just in marriage. So what we have to do is we have to decide, are we going to make this work? Are we going to reconcile? And we have a God that's a, a reconciler. We know our God reconciled. He made a way for us to be made right through Jesus. Right? Jesus died for our sin. He took our offense against him so that we could be forgiven. So we shouldn't be surprised that God created us to be this interdependent group that will have to learn to forgive one another. Kai read from Hebrews 12 earlier. Verse 3 said, Consider him who endured uh, from sin or such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And our chapter today began with the preacher saying, man, it'd be better, you'd be better off to not even be born. And yet Jesus was born into our broken world, full of broken relationships. He was oppressed. He had no one to comfort him. Jesus was ridiculed and marginalized because of his neighbor's envy. He was abandoned by his followers on the way to the cross. Palm Sunday, while they, they hailed him as king, Palm Sunday, a week later, they shouted, crucify him. Lane and Tripp, in their book, uh, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, they said this about the cross. And Jesus' relationship in the Trinity. He said, The shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship suffered more than what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endured when Jesus hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured the cross so that we could live a life freed from living exclusively focused on ourselves and what we want and what we think we need. Instead, we're free to live for him and for others. Let's pray. Jesus, we're such a fickle people, Lord. We think we know exactly what we need, and yet, as the preacher points out, time after time, our plans are pure vanity. Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you for Harvest and the people that you've, you've brought here and the lives that, so many lives I look around the room and, and they're woven together. People that, uh, that love you, people that love one another, people that a lot of us, we've all had to forgive one another for different things. God, and I thank you. I thank you that you first forgave us so that we can forgive one another, Lord. Jesus, will we be a people that are living for you a people that are, are living for others to come to know the truth about who you are so that they too can be forgiven of sin, Lord, so they too can have life in you that starts now and lasts forever. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.